A warning, this episode features discussions and dramatizations of graphic violence, as well as brief instances of animal cruelty and suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single legend about the Bakaneko. Today's episode combines details from Japanese folklore with a dramatic retelling of history and myth. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters. Throughout history, every civilization has created their own unique tales about the creatures that stalk the landscapes of the human imagination. Each week, our show examines those stories and takes a close look at the fears, desires, and anxieties that created these fictitious beasts. Today, we're discussing the supernatural cat of Japanese folklore, the Bakaneko. This demonic feline begins as an ordinary house cat who grows to unusual sizes and develops supernatural abilities. But though the Bakaneko terrorized medieval Japan, it has also been known to use its monstrous powers to avenge terrible injustice. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up, we unravel the origins of the Bakaneko. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Japanese culture is filled with images of cats. You may be familiar with the Maneki Neko or Beckoning Cat, a feline often depicted in images and statues with one paw raised in greeting. But perhaps you didn't know that the Maneki Neko is a symbol of the supernatural. The Maneki Neko is a kaibyo, a term for a magical cat in the legends of feudal Japan. But not all kaibyo are friendly. There are stories of a malevolent cousin to the Maneki Neko, a creature that stalks and kills humans unlucky enough to cross its path. It was called the Bakaneko, or monster cat. Though Bakaneko start out as average house cats, they undergo an eerie transformation. When they reach a certain age, their tails can grow to an unnatural length, allowing them to develop the ability to speak and walk on their hind legs. They also gain supernatural strength and can even shapeshift to take the appearance of the dead. Belief in the Bakaneko became so common that it led many cat owners to chop off their cat's tails, lest the demonic feline curse their household. But of the many Bakaneko legends, none were as popular as the vampire cat of Nabeshima. In the story, a house cat transforms into a Bakaneko and seeks justice from a daimyo, or lord, who was part of the Nabeshima family, around the time of the Sengoku and Edo periods. 
The tale is a disturbing warning that if you abuse a living soul, no matter its species, it just might find a way to get revenge. Haruko stood at the doorway, waiting for her son Matashichi to come home. The kindly old woman did this every night, as Matashichi worked as a guard for the great daimyo, Lord Nabeshima, a man who was as cruel as he was moody. Haruko sighed, scanning the horizon. She hadn't planned for this to be her son's destiny. She was part of the once powerful Ryuzoji clan. Her family had governed Hizen province for centuries, until their own daimyo, the legendary Takanobu Ryuzoji, was defeated in battle. After his death, the Nabeshima clan, the Ryuzoji's former allies, took over. The Ryuzoji had gone from rulers to subjects, and though their relationship with the Nabeshima was amicable on the surface, animosity bubbled underneath. Haruko and Matashichi lived a life of precarious privilege, and Haruko feared that her son's headstrong nature might clash with the daimyo's iron will. Of course, all of this mattered very little to her cat, Yuki. Yuki cared about was that Haruko always poured her a bowl of fresh milk, and Matashichi brought her fish and played with her after dinner. At night, Haruko would cradle Yuki and stroke her white fur as she drifted off to sleep. In Yuki's opinion, it was pure heaven. She couldn't ask her humans for a more perfect existence. But it all changed the night Matashichi didn't come home. Yuki watched, concerned, as Haruko paced frantically across the wooden floor all night until morning. Then, as dawn broke, someone knocked at the door. A handsome samurai stood at the entry. Yuki recognized his face. They called him Komori, and she'd seen him teach Matashichi how to wield a blade. Komori wore a grave expression, and as he spoke, the old woman broke down in tears. Yuki listened to the samurai. Though she could not speak, she was a clever cat and had been around humans long enough to understand quite a few of their words. Haruko yelled, You should have protected him! Then she broke down sobbing. Yuki crept closer to hear what the samurai said next, but Komori simply replied that Matashichi should have known better than to beat the daimyo at a game of Go. His death is his own fault, he told her. Then Komori simply turned his back on Haruko and left. Haruko was so inconsolable that she couldn't eat, sleep, or bring herself to leave her home. She refused to bathe and let her long black hair hang past her bloodshot eyes. She grew gaunt and pale like a ghost. Yuki curled up by her side and rubbed against her legs, but nothing seemed to help. The old woman just stared into the distance. 
As word spread of Matashichi's death, children whispered that Haruko had turned into a vengeful spirit. They dared each other to throw rocks at her door, and when Yuki wandered outside, they'd chase her with a knife, threatening to cut off her tail. At the end of another miserable day, an exhausted Haruko pleaded, Oh, Yuki, why won't they leave us alone? Yuki told Haruko that they would survive, but Haruko hadn't bothered to learn any cat tongue, so Yuki's kindness went unheard. One day, Yuki saw Haruko weaving white thread on her spinning wheel. While she did this, she hummed a strange lullaby and laughed at nothing in particular. She seemed happier, but Yuki wasn't sure if it was the right kind of happiness. That night, Haruko beckoned Yuki to the bedroom. When she scampered in, she saw what Haruko had been weaving. It was a white gown, and Haruko was now wearing it. Yuki curled up beside the old woman, and Haruko stroked her fur. She spoke to Yuki, her voice strangely calm. If the children think I am a ghost, then perhaps I will become one and haunt them. I will wear this burial gown and haunt them all. That is what this cruel world deserves, Yuki. Then Haruko set Yuki on the floor and lulled her to sleep with an old lullaby. The next morning, Yuki climbed onto the bed and nudged Haruko with her nose, but she would not move. When she saw the sheets were stained red and a knife lay at the old woman's side, Yuki let out a frantic mew. She hoped it might wake Haruko. She even licked the blood off her wrists but her owner did not stir. Yuki knew more than most humans might guess. She knew Haruko was dead. She knew about grief, too. After watching Haruko cry when her husband died many years ago, and after Matashichi's death, but Yuki did not know how to live on her own. Over the next few days, she survived off stale crumbs and a scrawny rat who had the misfortune of wandering inside. But soon, Haruko's body began to smell. Yuki knew if she stayed, she would starve or be forced to feast on her beloved owner. Leaving home to wander around town wasn't an option. The children still wished to chop off her tail, after all. But she remembered that Haruko and Matashichi had once brought her to a nearby village. Maybe there she would find food, or someone to take her in, she thought. But as Yuki started down the road, she felt a drop of rain. Yuki hated water. Before she knew it, she was caught in a downpour. Her fur became drenched and her paws muddy. She was already shivering by the time she saw the first villager. It was a fisherman, and Yuki could smell the freshly caught fish in his bamboo basket. Yuki mewed at the man, but he shooed her away with a swipe of his boot. She tried to follow him into his hut, but the man shut the door in her face. Yuki had always known people to be kind. She enjoyed the company of a loving family, 
but all that was gone. Now she was stuck with no shelter and a growling stomach. She sat alone in the rain outside the villagers' huts and watched them devour fresh fish in their warm homes, alongside their spoiled, well-fed cats. As the sun set, Yuki remembered a river that Matashichi would bring her to when he went fishing. Yuki had never caught a fish, but today she vowed to feed herself. At the river, Yuki saw a school of trout pass under the water's surface. She tried to snatch one until she was distracted by a figure walking around the river bend. It was a man holding a sack. Yuki thought there might be food in it, but she worried he would just shoo her away like the fisherman. So she cowered low on the ground, making herself look helpless. When the man got closer, Yuki intended to let out a pitiful meow, but that's when she heard the sound coming from his sack. Yuki heard a chorus of tiny, muffled mews calling out. There was a litter of crying kittens in there. What was he doing with them, she thought. Yuki got her answer when the man tossed the sack into the river and walked away. Yuki hurried to the water to help, but it was too late. The sack sank beneath the surface and the kitten's cries were drowned in the rushing water. She knew that even if she could swim, she didn't have the strength to save them. Yuki let out a pained yowl. Matashichi, Haruko, and now those innocent kittens. She felt so helpless, it was almost too much to bear. A powerful rage then filled Yuki's body. She thought of man's cruel nature and how so many suffered because of it. She remembered Haruko's final words, this world deserved to be haunted. Yuki vowed to make the kitten killer pay and felt something change within her. She suddenly stood on her hind legs, her claws stretched into fingers, and her white fur grew into a gown like the one Haruko wore. Her face became withered, pale and hairless, and Haruko's long black hair draped alongside her face. Yuki reeled as she looked down at her human hands. She felt a strength she never knew was possible and closed her palms in fury. She was now Haruko's spirit of vengeance, and she knew exactly what to do. Yuki climbed up a tree and set off. She leapt from branch to branch, following the wicked man's scent. As she hid high up in the leaves, she finally saw him and hummed the same strange lullaby Haruko had sung to her. The man stopped and called out, who's there? Yuki croaked in Haruko's raspy voice, such a tasty treat walking through my woods. The man swallowed and backed up against a tree. Sadly for him, it was the very tree Yuki was hiding in. 
Yuki leapt down from the branches, landing right at his feet. The man screamed for help, but it was too late. Yuki's eyes turned black, and her fingers extended into claws. Her teeth became jagged, and her face contorted into that of a cat. The man cried out for mercy, but Yuki silenced him by tearing out his throat. When the rain stopped, very little of the man was left. Yuki licked her paws clean and saw something quite strange behind her. She had now grown a second tail. Yuki knew Haruko would have been proud, but she was still hungry, and this one human wasn't to blame for Yuki's situation. Her true target was the man responsible for killing Matashichi and forcing his mother to die. She remembered what Haruko called him, Lord Nabeshima. Yuki swore she would find him, and when she did, she would make him suffer. Coming up, Yuki meets Lord Nabeshima in very unlikely circumstances. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the Parcast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. Bakaneko were frequent characters in kaidan, ghost stories that became popular during Japan's Edo period. Like many kaidan, Bakaneko myths illustrated the Buddhist principle of karma. Bakaneko would often be summoned to take vengeance on the living for some injustice, but their noble intentions did not lessen their monstrosity or the terror they sowed. Some of these myths feature the Bakaneko taking on the form of a courtesan. This no doubt was born from a fear of women's power, but there's also a much more specific explanation. Japanese courtesans could not be seen eating by their customers, so they often had their meals late at night in secret. If a drunken client woke up, they'd catch their courtesan ravenously eating with her hands, and believed the graceful woman had turned into a monstrous bakaneko. But what was worse is if they realized the woman was not only a bakaneko, but a nekomata. 
Nekomata, which means forked cat, are particularly dangerous and were known to be even more brutal than the Bakaneko. They were creatures of revenge that thirsted after the blood of those who abused cats or their owners. After feasting on the kitten killer, Yuki's appetite had only grown. Hunters in the forest who crossed her path were never heard from again. And soon the terrified villagers whispered of a cat-like old woman who devoured anyone who ventured into the woods. But Yuki didn't care about the pain and suffering she caused. The villagers didn't care when the daimyo killed Matashichi simply because he beat him in a game. They didn't care when Haruko, his grieving mother, took her own life. And they certainly didn't care when Yuki was left alone and hungry in the rain. Yuki saw humans for what they really were, cruel and selfish, and she felt nothing but contempt for them, but she still longed for her humans. When Yuki took on Haruko's form, her owner's memories filled her mind. She saw a young Matashichi with his mother and father. She even saw herself as a kitten happily playing with them. Now those memories only lived on inside Yuki. The people in them were gone, and only one man was responsible. For days, Yuki watched the palace of the daimyo, Lord Nabeshima, but it was too heavily guarded, even for a creature as powerful as she. The daimyo himself rarely made appearances outside his fortress, and when he did, he was never alone. Whenever Yuki tried to venture across the courtyard as a cat, a guard would always kick her away. But one night, Yuki saw someone in the garden outside the palace. It was the daimyo's favorite courtesan enjoying a midnight stroll. The young woman named Otoyo had kind eyes, so Yuki decided to approach her. Yuki rubbed against Otoyo's leg, then rolled onto her back. Otoyo chuckled and pet Yuki. She purred with gratitude, then scurried away with a playful mew, stopping at the edge of the azaleas. All right, I'll play, Otoyo laughed. Yuki then disappeared around a corner, but when Otoyo caught up, the cat was gone. Otoyo heard a sickly mew from under a hedge and tried to coax Yuki out. Otoyo beckoned for her, then knelt down to look deep within the bushes. When Otoyo found Yuki, the face looking back at her wasn't the innocent white cat she'd just seen. It was a demonic creature, some horrible combination of a human and a feline. Otoyo stumbled back, but the thing sunk its claws into her leg and dragged her screaming into the bushes. <laughs> After Yuki feasted, she buried Otoyo's remains under the cherry blossoms. Minutes later, when a guard walked by, Yuki had already taken on Otoyo's appearance. Unaware that the real Otoyo was just beneath his feet, the guard told Yuki that the daimyo wanted to see her at once in his chambers. 
Yuki nodded. She certainly wouldn't want to keep the daimyo waiting. Yuki followed the guard through the palace and began to feel unwell. She was reliving Otoyo's memories now, just as she had Haruko's. In one moment, she was in the present, being led by the guard. In the next, she was walking down the same hall with a man she recognized as Komori, the samurai who had told Yuki's owner of her son's death. In the memory, Komori took Otoyo's hand when no one was watching, but right as he did, the memory ended and Yuki was back in the present. The guard sensed Yuki's unease and told her to paste a smile on her pretty face. He slid open a door into a candlelit room. There, Lord Nabashima stood in a silk robe, waiting. The guard left them alone, sliding the door closed behind him. The young daimyo approached Yuki. He kissed her hand and made his way up her arm. Yuki felt a combination of disgust and satisfaction. This was the man who had killed Matashichi, and Yuki had him right where she wanted him. But as the daimyo embraced her, Yuki was confused. She didn't understand the strange relations humans had with one another, but luckily, Otoyo's memories guided her. Yuki lay with Nabashima that night, and he slept soundly, unaware of his courtesan's true identity. She watched him snore and plotted her attack. Devouring him in his sleep would be too easy, too merciful. She had to destroy him the way he destroyed Haruko. She would kill Nabashima, but first, she'd drive him mad. Yuki shifted back into her monstrous cat form and bit into his neck. While she sucked his blood, Nabashima did not stir as he'd fallen into a hypnotized state. Yuki drank a little, then forced herself to let him go. She had drained a bit of his essence and wanted more, but she knew her patience would be rewarded. The next morning, Yuki awoke and looked over at the daimyo. He looked a little older and a bit paler. She smirked to herself. Her plan was working. Soon there was a knock at the door. Yuki answered it and was surprised to see Lord Nabashima's advisors. They were upset that the daimyo had slept through their morning council meeting and practically threw Yuki out into the hall. They blamed her for being too enticing. Yuki stayed by the door a moment, listening to the commotion within. She smiled as she heard the daimyo complain to his advisors about strange dreams he'd had of a woman with the face of a cat. While Yuki listened, a man walked up to her, one she recognized all too well. It was Komori, the samurai that visited Haruko's house. He guided her to her own private room, and Yuki sensed the same affection that she felt in Otoyo's memories. Komori even put a hand on her arm and spoke with a gentle, loving tone. I know your time with Lord Nabashima can be trying. Is there anything I can do for you, Otoyo? 
Most of Yuki's thoughts were consumed with destroying the daimyo, but she was still a cat at heart, so she asked for as much fresh fish as Komori could bring her. Much to her surprise, he returned with a plate piled high with tasty fish and rice. Then, to her surprise, he asked if he could join her. There seemed to be a weight to his question, but Yuki just shrugged. She dug into her food, reaching around the rice to shovel fish into her mouth with her bare hands. Somewhere inside, Otoyo's spirit warned her that her behavior was improper. Yuki sensed Komori watching and suddenly felt a prickle of shame. But Komori didn't seem to mind her ravenous appetite. In fact, he was amused. When he asked if she'd like more fish tomorrow, Yuki practically purred. Komori smiled and whispered, I'll see you again soon, dear Otoyo. Yuki found that while the fish was plentiful, Otoyo didn't have many other freedoms. She was mostly confined to her chambers during the day, and at night she was at Lord Nabashima's mercy. Yuki was puzzled at this existence. Otoyo was practically a house pet like Yuki was, but her master was far less loving. Otoyo's only solace was her evening stroll through the gardens, where she looked up at the stars. And soon, Yuki took up this habit as well. As she walked, glimpses of Otoyo's past floated to the surface of Yuki's mind, a poor, affection-starved childhood. Then a new life as a beautiful captive, pleasing men she had no affection for. Yuki began to feel guilty for killing Otoyo, but this did not deter her from vengeance. She wasn't leaving Otoyo's gilded prison until the daimyo had suffered. Yuki spent her days eating fish with Komori and her nights draining the daimyo. His hair began to gray, and wrinkles formed on his youthful face. After just a week, Nabeshima appeared to have aged a decade. During the day, he would rant about the cat-like monster of his dreams, and could barely stay awake during council meetings. As his appearance grew more drastic, his advisors grew concerned and urged him to see a physician. But no doctor could figure out what was happening to Nabashima, or why he had two faint puncture wounds on his neck that never quite seemed to heal. More soldiers were assigned to keep watch outside the daimyo's bedroom. They stood guard all night unaware that the enemy they sought was already snuggled up beside their leader. Yuki took great pleasure in draining Nabashima, but she also looked forward to her time with Komori. She enjoyed his attention, even if she did not quite share Otoyo's human feelings for him. He was kinder than anyone else in the palace, and Yuki soon realized that she was draining less and less blood from the daimyo as a way to prolong her stay. She marveled at the fact that she was able to find some bliss in this dreadful place. Unfortunately, her bliss would prove to be all too brief. One night, Yuki convinced Komori to take a stroll in the garden. He had to stay a few paces behind her, but Yuki felt comforted by his supportive presence. 
Her spirits were so high that she couldn't help but smile at a gardener digging under the cherry blossoms. But the look on his face made her stop in her tracks. The gardener covered his mouth in horror as he pulled something from the soil. It was the bloody fabric of the real Otoyo's gown. And as he looked up to see Yuki dressed in the same dress, his brow furrowed in confusion. Then suspicion. Komori walked up, mystified at the gardener's discovery. As he stared at Yuki, she knew she should give him some clever explanation, but she was a cat after all. So she did what cats do best. She bolted. Coming up, Yuki fights to avenge her family before it's too late. And now, back to the story. Around the 19th century, the vampire cat of Nabashima was adapted for the stage as a kabuki play. At the time, the play sparked the ire of the Nabashima clan's descendants. But despite their efforts to suppress it, the tale of their daimyo's encounter with a bakaneko still circulated throughout Japan. In the 20th century, bakaneko stories were kept alive thanks to a new medium, cinema. Japanese filmmakers began to make kaibyo films, or ghost cat films, bringing the bakaneko myth to the modern age. The best-known kaibyo film is Kaneto Shindo's Kuroneko, which means black cat. The film combines the myth of the bakaneko with that of the ondyo, a vengeful spirit who's often depicted as a female with long black hair and wearing a white burial gown. In the film, a mother and daughter-in-law are assaulted and murdered by samurai. But when a cat spirit resurrects them both, they begin a campaign of vengeance against their killers. Bakaneko, like Yuki, embody the righteous fury of revenge, but Yuki wasn't the only one in the daimyo's palace dead set on justice. Yuki raced into her chambers and shut the doors, cursing herself. She may have been a sly cat, but she had done a terrible job of thinking ahead. Everything had gone well. She had killed the courtesan Otoyo and taken her form in order to exact revenge on Lord Nabashima. But now Otoyo's body had been found, and samurai were rushing to Yuki's room to avenge the courtesan. From the other side of the door, Yuki heard Otoyo's lover, Komori, yell, Show yourself, demon! Yuki innocently slid open the door, stepped into the hall, and put on her best human smile. She laughed and asked, Komori, is everything all right? The guards drew their weapons as Komori told her that they had just dug up Otoyo's body. Yuki feigned wide-eyed innocence. I don't understand. My body is right here. Komori stared at her with anger and sorrow, then barked to his men, kill her. Yuki backed down the hall. She knew it was now or never. She had to get to the other side of the palace and kill the daimyo, or else she would fail the memory of Haruko and her fallen son. 
Komori brought his sword down on Yuki, but before it could connect, she grabbed the blade by both sides. With one flick of her wrist, Yuki snapped the katana in half, while Komori and the guards watched in disbelief. Yuki picked Komori up and tossed him through a nearby door. His men then turned to charge at Yuki, but stopped cold when they saw her transform. Yuki threw her head back and her body convulsed. She grew to over 10 feet tall, her teeth sharpened to fangs, and her hands became razor-sharp claws. Two snake-like tails waved behind her, as if they had minds of their own. The samurais shivered at the sight, but they knew they had to rid the palace of this demon. The men attacked, but Yuki clawed and sliced through their armor like it was paper. Her white fur became soaked in red. At the end of the fight, only one remained alive, a young man, really more of a boy. He faced Yuki and tried to look brave, but the trembling spear in his hand betrayed his terror. Yuki snatched the spear away and held it to his neck. The guard pleaded for his life, but Yuki was in no mood for mercy. She grabbed his hair and thrust her spear right through his skull. Yuki tore through the palace, clawing down anyone who stood in her way. The hallways flowed with blood and severed limbs. She finally arrived at the daimyo's chambers and ripped the door off its hinges. The time for vengeance had come. Yuki found Lord Nabeshima huddling in a corner on the floor, too weak and drained to do anything but cower. She smiled and lunged for him. But before she could attack, she felt a sharp pain shoot through her back. She looked down to see a broken katana sticking out of her chest. Her attacker pulled the blade out, and Yuki turned to see it was Komori. He was alive and covered in the blood of his men. He raised his blade for the killing blow. But Yuki shifted her appearance to look like Otoyo again, which made Komori hesitate. It was all the time Yuki needed to rush to Lord Nabeshima and take him by the throat. Komori ordered, let him go. Yuki turned to him, her eyes sharp. Don't you want to know why I'm here? Komori replied that he couldn't care less about the whims of a demon. Yuki then transformed into Haruko. In the old woman's form, she gazed deep into Komori's eyes and asked, Do you remember me? Komori shivered as a chill ran down his spine. Yuki spat. Lord Nabashima deserves to be punished for what he did to this poor woman's son. Komori shook his head, then admitted, But he did not swing the blade that killed Matashichi, I did to serve my lord. Yuki was stunned. How could this be the same kind man who brought her fish and laughed with her as they ate? She dropped Nabashima to the ground and faced Komori, wrath burning in her eyes. 
she didn't see Lord Nabashima pull a decorative dagger from the wall and plunge it into her shoulder. <laughs> Nabashima was weak and the cut wasn't deep, but Yuki fell to her knees in pain and surprise. Then Komori buried his broken sword deep into Yuki's heart. Yuki pulled the katana from her chest and knew it was already too late. She felt the life drain from her body, but used the last of her strength to change shape once more. She looked up at Komori and stared at him with the eyes of Otoyo. If he was the cause of all of Yuki's pain, then her final revenge would be to make him watch the woman he loved die a bloody death. As Yuki shut her eyes, her last thoughts were happy ones. Haruko's humming, the bowls of milk and fish Matashichi brought her, pleasant days wandering through the forest alongside her family, a family that called out to her now from somewhere far beyond. Because she was a good little pet, she went off to join them. Komori watched as Yuki turned back into a harmless white house cat. Her tiny body shivered as she breathed her last breath. Lord Nabashima sat in the corner, shaking. With his eyes closed in fright, he asked Komori what kind of monster could create all this chaos. Komori muttered, it was just a cat. But it wasn't just any cat, he realized. Komori recognized her. She was the cat from the old woman's home. But could this be the same creature? He stared at Yuki, bewildered at how something so small could cause such harm. The daimyo stood up, shaking, and told Komori to dispose of the wretched beast. Then he hurried out of his chambers. Komori did as he was told and picked up the little cat. But when he saw her closed eyes, his heart filled with strange remorse. He'd taken so many lives in service of the daimyo. Why did this one make him feel so guilty? Perhaps, he realized, because he understood her. After all, Yuki was only obeying her master. Many years have passed since the days of the Ryuzoji and Nabeshima clans, but Bakaneko lore is alive and well thanks to its presence in world-renowned Japanese video games, anime, manga, and cinema. But even in its modern context, the Bakaneko remains terrifying. The myth of the Bakaneko is undoubtedly designed to scare us. They take stereotypically innocent, familiar creatures, like adorable house cats or kind old women, and make us wonder if true, terrifying evil lurks within them. But when human cruelty knows no bounds, we often harm even the most innocent. So what could be more fitting than for these seemingly harmless beings to become symbols of wrath and revenge? 
With that in mind, it's clear that the myth of the Bakeneko isn't only here to send chills down our spines, it can also serve as a powerful reminder that all life, no matter how small or strange, is precious. It must be protected or else. Those who fail to grasp its value are doomed to face the consequences. So if you ever encounter a lone cat on the street, make sure you treat it with respect. You never know which one could be a bakaneko in disguise. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Bakaneko, among the many sources we used, we found the book Kaibyo, The Supernatural Cats of Japan by Zach Davison and Samurai Road by Lawrence Winkler to be especially helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Drew Marin, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.